I ask that your Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of these words thousands of years ago, that that same Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst and within each of us, that you would open us to understand the truth, to receive it, to respond to it, and that you would be glorified in the work that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. James kicks off this new section of his letter that is about division and discord with yet another rhetorical question. And this question of rhetoric is, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? He's kind of saying, can't we all just get along? No, we can't. Because of the passions of your flesh at war within you, it's kind of like saying, this is why we can't have nice things. Like harmony and unity and agreements and mutual pursuit of the Lord. We can't have these nice things because of the passionate flesh desires. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain So you fight and quarrel. See, in the same way that James had previously stated, if you have faith inside you, I'm paraphrasing, that if you have faith inside you, it will come out of you in good works and in good words. Or he said that if you've got God's wisdom inside of you, it will come out in purity and peacekeeping and gentleness and openness to reason and mercy and good fruits and impartiality and in sincerity. James is now saying in this chapter that if there's quarrels and fighting among you, it's coming from what's within you, not from some external force or factor or circumstances. Remember in chapter 1 where James had said, hey, each one who is tempted is someone who is led away or lured away by his own desire. So in the open of the letter, we have groundwork laid for the same thing that we find here. That our own desires, our own sinful desires that are still present in our flesh are what lead us away from the Lord in temptation, but they're also the same things that cause us to sow discord or disunity among the fellowship and even outside of the fellowship. He's saying it's what's within you, that we're not tempted by these external things, but internally. Here he is showing one of the very practical implications of how one's fleshly desires have led to various degrees of destruction, especially relationally saying, hey guys, you want to know why you fight? Why you kill each other and commit evil against each other? It's not because of these external things that somebody did to you. It's not because Joe said this, or Susie's did that, or whatever. It's because of the internal passions and desires of your flesh. You desire and don't have, so you murder. Now, for James's audience, this might have been a little more applicable, because as we're reading this today, hopefully none of us, at least hopefully very few of us, are hearing this and going, oh, that's why. I murdered that person. (laughs) Hopefully that's not true of any of us. 
But we might hear that and think, oh, well, that's not pertaining to me. Rather, I think if we were considering our modern context, maybe perhaps James would have said to us, you desire and don't have, so you gossip. Or you desire and you don't have, so you slander. Or perhaps he would say, you desire and don't have, so you drop hints and mooch. (laughs) Or you desire and don't have, so you steal. Or you desire and you don't have, so you cheat. Or you desire and you don't have, so you manipulate or undermine. These interpersonal destructive behaviors that are damaging to others and ourselves come from, James is saying, our internal passions, our internal, the desires of the flesh, discontentment, jealousy, and selfish ambition. Now, I love after he makes this point, trying to say, it's stuff inside of you that's causing these issues, that's causing these problems. He then steps off on this little sidebar, this little side tangent, which encourages me because I tend to do that too. (laughs) He steps off and he says, also, you don't have sometimes because you don't ask. And some of the things that that's causing these wars with you is because you don't have things and so you murder to get the things or you don't have things and you do these underhanded or undermined or evil things because you don't have things. And to be quite honest, you could just ask God. <laughs> you could simply just ask. And so one of the things I want to say today, buckle up this, it's going to be profound <laughs> Here we go. Three letters. Ask. (laughs) Ask God for what you need. Ask God for what you want, for what you desire and what you're longing for. And I want to be careful here because there is some erroneous theology out there today that focuses our relationship with God on just what he can do for us and what he can give us. I'd call it prosperity gospel and I would scream, run away from it. But Still, we do have a good God, a good Father, who delights in answering our prayers. Jesus taught us to ask. Paul taught us to ask. James is teaching us to ask. The Apostle John teaches us to ask. We could go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where Paul told the Philippians, hey, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, giving us the peace that passes all understanding. God wants us to ask. Listen, if you come to me and you tell me, man, Pastor Stephen, I'm I'm sick or I'm injured, I hurt myself, or something like that. I am going to pray and ask God to heal you every time, without fail. That's what I'm going to ask him for. But similarly, James also doesn't say the only reason that you don't have is because you don't ask. Because he goes on to say, some of you ask and don't have because you ask wrongly. And then he goes on to explain the wrong way in which we ask. And he says, you don't have because you ask wrongly, wanting to spend it on your passions. Saying sometimes we ask for things that are motivated by those sinful internal desires of our flesh. And thank God that God is so good that sometimes he says no, not because he's bad, rather because he's good. 
Now, I'm not a big country music fan, but maybe you're familiar with the, uh, the good old song of Garth Brooks saying that, Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. Obviously, I am big into country and probably just butchered the melody if you're familiar with that song. But thank God. Yeah, that's true. That's accurate. Man, thank God that sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers. Sometimes, because we are asking wrongly for things that we want, that we desire in our flesh that actually he knows would be destructive for us. That in his goodness, as a good, kind, and loving father, like the many times I have to tell my daughters no, not just because I get kicks and giggles out of telling my daughters no, I don't, I would love to tell them yes always, but sometimes they want things that are bad for them. Sometimes my daughters want things that are destructive for them. Sometimes they're asking for things and they have stinky attitudes, and I'm going, no, I'm not giving you what you want right now with this mess of an attitude that you're bringing to me. You need to go and figure out this attitude and then maybe talk to me again. James is saying sometimes we don't have things because we ask wrongly. I don't know if there's any parents among me here who have ever had your kids maybe ask you for money. This is probably parents with older kids, maybe preteen or teenager. I can identify as not someone who has a kid that age, but as someone who has been a kid that age, where your parent, where the kid might come to the parent and say, hey, mom or dad, can I have $200? And when that happens, every parent goes, of course, here you go. Have a great day. It's not what you do, is it? Parents, what do you do? What? What do you want? Why? Why do you want $200 or need $200? You want to understand the why behind what they're asking for. And plenty of times, wise and good parental judgment leads you to say, no. (laughs) That thing that you want is not something that I want for you. And I'm good, and I love you, and I care about you, but that's not the best decision. I remember when I was 12, 13, somewhere in there, I wanted to play the guitar. I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And so I went to my dad, and I said, hey, dad. It's probably like, hey, dad. Um, I would like to learn how to play the guitar. And my dad's like, that's great, son. You know, I used to play the guitar. And I'm like, yeah, who cares? Um, And he's like, well, I have, you know, an old Alvarez acoustic. And I was like, cool, again, who cares? I, um, I want to play rock. And so I need an electric guitar. Could you get me one since I'm too young to have a job and stuff? And he said, well, you know, son, actually, um, I'll tell you what. Here's what we'll do. Instead of buying you an electric guitar right now, I'm not sure, you know, Kids have kicks, they're into one thing and then the next thing. How about this, instead of buying you an electric guitar, I'll give you my Alvarez acoustic, you can learn and practice on that, and then after you show that you're really committed to this, really developing this skill and this passion, and you wanna keep going, maybe down the road, then maybe we'll buy you an electric. But I'm like, but I wanna play rock. And that's like, stuff like that. and. On an acoustic, it would sound like, and I want an electric. 
And he's like, well, we'll see. If you really want to learn, if you really want to learn to play the guitar, you'll take this and you'll learn. And thank God for my dad's wisdom because I started playing that Alvarez acoustic and it made my fingers bleed and I went through the blisters and the calluses and here I am uh, over 20-something years later, uh, a good guitar player. And the greater thing about it is him not giving me what I want, when I wanted it, the way I wanted it, required me to grow in discipline and in character. And throughout the process, wherein the reason I wanted to play the guitar was to be cool and famous and popular and make people go, wow. Yet throughout time and being disciplined through the things that the acoustic guitar gave me, also developed my character, developed my patience, taught me delayed gratification. It did a lot more for me than what it would have done for me had my dad given me what I wanted, when I wanted it, the way I wanted it. Thank God that he is a good father who loves us, wants what's best for us, and therefore answers our prayers within his wisdom, within his plan for our good and for his glory. This also makes me think of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, where the apostle John said this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Listen, if God doesn't answer our prayers or give us what we want, it is not because he's not good. In fact, it is actually because he always is good. Listen, you might be thinking that you want something, but if it's not what God wants for you, you don't want it. It's not what God wants for you. You don't want it. Further, back to James's point, is that if you're asking wrongly, asking with wrong motives, asking with, with sin in your heart or whatever, God's going to go, mm-mm. You might not like that, but it's for your good. Back to the point here, James 4 and verse 4, as he's still trying to confront the internal desires that are ungodly, James gets pretty strong here, having just said, those of you who would, you don't get because you ask wrongly because you want to spend it on your passions, he then says this, you adulterous people. Ouch. Those three words, I want to just pause for a second and I want to underline and highlight and maybe note that middle word, the second one, which is adulterous people. Notice, he's talking about the desire for things, for stuff. He said, you would spend it on your passions. And then he would go on to say, you adulterers, or you adulterous people. Let's move forward. But he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, making us enemies with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Once more, this makes me think of 1 John, the same book we were just in, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. John, like James, similarly here, is saying, listen, you can't have it both ways. You cannot love God and love this world, the ways of the world, the things of the world. You have to pick one. You can't have both. Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. And he was talking about loving money. He said, you can't serve both God and mammon. Contextually, that means money. He said, you can't serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. James saying, hey, you would spend this on your passions. And John here saying you can't love God and love the world and the things in the world. And he goes on to further define those things in the world by saying the desires of the flesh sounds just like what James is talking about in chapter 4. These desires of the flesh that create animosity and enmity between us and between God. He says that those desires create enmity between us and God. These desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the things that, that our flesh says, oh, that feels good and therefore I want it. He says the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh, and he says the desires of the eyes or the lust of the eyes. This discontentment, the lust of the eyes by looking at others and going, how come, why can't, why do they and I, God, why can't and... This discontentment that what God has given us is not enough for us. This jealousy by looking at others and seeing the blessing or success or whatever that they might have and going, they're whatever. It's ungodly. That's the, the desire of the eyes, longing for what we don't have and going, what I have is not enough. And then thirdly, the pride of life, the desire to lift ourselves up to exalt ourselves, to make ourselves high and known and famous and popular rather than humbling ourselves to exalt the name of Christ. Well, what's wrong with loving the world? Didn't God create the world? We are warned against this because it's, it's like, it's like a bride saying yes to a proposal from a groom where he gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me? It's kind of like that, that girlfriend who's proposed to saying, yes. <laughs> Not because they love that bridegroom. Not because they're eager to spend the rest of their life with him. But more so because they are enamored with the concept and love of the idea of being engaged, and love with the idea of planning the wedding, and love with the idea of all of everything that would lead up to it, and love with the idea of going to the dress shops and trying on the dresses, and picking out the dress and saying yes to the dress, and the idea of wearing that dress, the idea of walking down the aisle, the idea of everyone beholding her bridally splendor and caring not at all about the true prize, which is gaining the groom. This is why when James says that you would spend it on your passions, he then goes on to say, you adulterous people. Now throughout scripture, there are many themes. But in the first couple of chapters of the entire Bible, in Genesis, we see marriage created and communicated its purposes. 
And then in the book of Revelation, our relationship as the church is painted, our relationship with church to Christ is painted as this picture of the bride and the bridegroom, wherein Jesus Christ is the groom, we the church are his bride, and he's coming back for a pure bride. Not only the beginning and end, the bookends of the Bible, but all throughout Scripture, the concept of God's people relating to him is painted in the picture of marriage, where God's talking to Israel, his chosen people in the Old Testament, and when they are unfaithful, practicing infidelity to him, they are called adulterers. And it's because they're worshiping and serving and following false gods and idols. They're turning from God and they're called adulterers. Even if you went to the prophetic book of Hosea, you would see the prophet Hosea being commanded by God to marry the prostitute. Why? To teach the people through a picture of this marriage that, hey, here's what your relationship with me looks like. I'm a good and perfect and loving and kind and patient husband, and you have been unfaithful. And so, in this life and in this world, wherein we have, especially in America, everything we want at our fingertips— we have also a culture that is constantly telling us through marketing and commercials and billboards, whatever, that, hey, you almost have what you need to be happy. You just need one more thing. You just need the new model. You just need the bigger version. If only you could find that special someone, your loneliness would be cured. If only this last puzzle piece of your life was there, then you'd finally be content. And Scripture would reveal to us that that is adultery because it is longing for God's creation to fill what only the Creator can. Romans chapter 1 talks about this wherein Paul is warning us of what it looks like to be the people that don't know God, saying that these people who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the created thing or the creation rather than the creator. You can't have it both ways. Listen, our life on this earth is the engagement. We are betrothed to the bridegroom and the Holy Spirit within us stirs us to long for the groom. Long for the groom, not just the wedding day, of course, when you are engaged, you of course are excited about that wedding day. You of course are excited about everything that will go into it. You're excited about the pomp and circumstance, about the festivities, about the celebration, about the covenant ceremony, about all of it. But the true anchor of all the joy is that you get the spouse, right? The true core of the joy is not that you get to go, everyone, look at me and how pretty I am. And look at the decorations we put out. And look at the feasts that we've prepared. No, it's that you get your spouse. The core, the heartbeat, the anchor of Christianity is not all the pomp and circumstance and the decorations and the planning and all these different things. As glorious as the marriage feast of the Lamb will be, more than our minds can understand. When God has prepared that day for us, 
Our minds will be blown by all the spectacular beauty, but I can tell you the reason that our knees will be buckling and our hearts will be leaping and our tear ducts will be pouring out and our voices will be declaring in joy is because we get Jesus. And now we get to look at our lives We get to look at our deeds, at our works, at the fruit of our lives, at the things that we're longing for, at our behaviors, at our actions, at our words, all of this to go, am I just excited about the aisle? Am I just excited about the dress? Or am I excited because I have beheld the king of glory and I get him? So many people begin a pursuit of God because of problems in their life, troubles in their life, and or even just wanting more. God exists to give me, or God exists to fix this. We further exist for his glory. That is why you breathe. That is why your heart beats. You were created for the glory of God. And nothing, nothing gives God more glory than in the bride longing for and delighting in the bridegroom. And looking at all of creation and recognizing, man, what a beautiful stage he has made. And what wonderful provision he has given but I get to be with him. Lord, Holy Spirit, please open our eyes. Please stir our affections for you. Please remove the lies, the blinders, the distractors, the seducers of this world all the things in our society and our culture that would tell us that they are where the joy is. Jesus, let us see your beauty, your wonder, your majesty, your glory, your holiness that would so captivate our hearts to see that no thing that exists compares to you. To see that no person that exists compares to you. To see that no achievement or accomplishment or acclaim compares to you. Jesus, I ask that the truth from Matthew 13, that you are the treasure in the field, that that would be true in our hearts today and always. I ask that you would guard us from the seductions of our culture, from the lies of the enemy. And help us set our eyes on you. Thank you, Lord. Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of majesty on high. Looking unto Jesus. Jesus is the prize. And the reason that James speaks so strongly 
to a people who would pray and ask wrongly to spend it on their passions. The reason he speaks so strongly to a people who would say, I have faith, but don't live it out on their works. The reason that James would speak so strongly to a people who hear and do not do is because he's trying to help them see that they are in love with the world and not in love with the bridegroom. This is why the book of Revelation teaches that the church's prayer is come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It is not, hang on a minute because I'm really enjoying this. It is not, actually, could you just pause for a little while longer because there's some stuff here I still want to do and some things I want to try and some things I want to enjoy. The heart of the Christian is this cannot compare to what is to come. And like Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, why? For the joy set before him. The joy set before Jesus caused him to endure the cross. We just celebrated Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It was the joy that was ahead of him, meaning being restored to the the throne room of the Father, sitting with him, and also being joined to the people of God through the Holy Spirit of God. The joy of relationship with the Father in harmony and unity, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the joy of us being reconciled to the Godhead. That joy before Jesus caused him to go, I can do it. I will endure, I will take the nails, I will take the thorns, I will take the spear, I will bear the cross, I will do all of it because of what is ahead of me. This life is the engagement. And there is hardship in this season. When your eyes are fixed on the prize of the bridegroom, As the church, not on the dress, not on all these other extemporaneous things, but on the bridegroom. It gives you the endurance and it gives you the joy. It gives you the hope. It gives you the peace. It gives you the comfort. It gives you all that you need. None of that's in my notes, so I'll just trust that the Holy Spirit was doing something there. We are betrothed to the bridegroom, and that is why the Holy Spirit within us stirs us to long for the groom. He stirs in us an eager desire for the wedding day. And our time here on this earth is preparing for that day. It's preparing for that day. And our time here on this earth, we prepare and we invite all who would come. Please come. Please come. We prepare by receiving the purity that the groom bought for us, even though we were unfaithful. Think about it. Our dress is a a tainted and stained, torn garment, mired in sin. And on that day of the marriage feast of the Lamb, when all things Conclude in this time and in this age, 
And we are standing before him when he calls his bride unto himself, his pure bride. We are not purified because we washed our dress. We are not purified. We don't walk down that aisle in a spotless dress because we were good tailors and knew how to fix it. We will walk down the aisle as the church to the bridegroom in the dress that he gave us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, where we are made clean and spotless by his blood. There will never have ever been a day so beautiful. There will never have ever been a moment of deeper joy in your existence. There will never have ever been a greater peace than we will know in that moment. And here and now, we long for that day. And if we don't long for that day, I think James would try and get us to look in the mirror and go, why do you love this day? Why do you love these things? Why do you love this world and what is in it? Which is why James said in chapter 4, verses 5 through 10, or do you suppose it is no purpose, or it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Why do you think the scripture is telling us that he's jealous over his Holy Spirit and dwelling in us? I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said something like, uh, the, God never gives his spirit to a man to allow that man to continue to live like the world. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. And all of the wounds that scripture is inflicting on us right now, all the cuts, all this mirror holding up, he ministers, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen, there is nothing more important in your life than loving God. There is nothing more important in your life than loving God. This is why Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, saying the greatest commandment is easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with everything you've got. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets, all those commands, hang on those two. Love God with everything you got. There's nothing more important in your life than that you love God. The challenge is we can all sit here and go, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to love God. So, okay, Stephen, love God. That's not how it works. We love him by beholding him 
We love him by seeing who he is. And the primary way that happens is through his word. By seeing his character, his nature, his love, his mercy, his patience, his steadfastness, all that he is. We behold him in his word and he woos us and draws us by his spirit. When we look into his word, it opens our eyes to see the truth of who he is. And he draws us into him. He draws us closer. He woos us by his grace and his mercy and his love. Romans 2 tells us that it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. He draws us in. We must seek him, though. We must desire him. We must pursue him. Listen, you will either love God or love God's creation. You will either worship the creator or his created things. You're like, well, we're not standing and gathering once a week going, well, thou, oh, iPhone, art high. We're not worshiping created things. No, it is a loyalty and a longing for created things. You will either serve your own sinful passions or serve his holy mission. You will either live for yourself or you will live for him. You will either have selfish ambition or you will have humble service. You will either have jealousy or you will have contentment. You will either have Christ or you will have the world. No man can serve two masters. Here is the beauty of what James promised to us. He says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle James promises us that if we draw near to God, if we pursue him, if we seek him, if we long for him, he will draw near to us. Guys, that is one of the most wonderful, most spectacular, most beautiful, and most valuable promises in all of Scripture. Have you, can you recall a time where you had a crush on someone and you're like, I'm going to draw near to them somehow by like giving hints or flirting awkwardly or texting or trying to slide into their DMs or whatever. I'm going to try and draw near to them somehow in hope, hope that it's mutual and that they want to draw near to me. I hope that happens. And sometimes it hurts when they're like, oh, thanks. I kind of see you more as a friend. And you go away hurt, saddened, wounded, disappointed. James is telling us if you draw near to God, there is no friend zone you get put in where he's like, eh, actually, I kind of don't want what you want. He's going, yes, yes. Come on, come here. I love you, come here. <laughs> Draw near. A.W. Tozer also said, we have as much of God as we actually want. If he will draw near to us when we draw near to him, it means you can have as much of God as you want. Our only limitation is our desire. And you can either have the desires of your flesh ruling you to where you're going, yeah, I know these things and he's beautiful and uh, okay, so I'll go to church on Sunday, but I really desire this stuff. Or you will recognize 
There is the most beautiful, most glorious, most wonderful, most holy, most good, most just, most loving, most righteous groom. And all this world and all its riches and all its pleasures and all it tries to offer me is the seductress trying to woo me away from the true love. Draw near to God in repentance of sin. Draw near to God in prayer. Draw near to God in worship. Draw near to God in Christ-centered community and fellowship. You can have as much of God as you want. The question is, what do you want? If you have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, you will want him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would draw us to you, that you would woo us, that you would open our eyes to see the true beauty, majesty, and wonder of who you are and what you have done, making way for us to come to you. Please, Lord, let us not walk in the foolishness of turning up our nose to the greatest offer available of knowing you and drawing near. Let us draw near to you in Jesus' name.